Mac Parker. Ever hear of Planet of the Apes? Uh, the movie or the planet? The brand new multi-million dollar musical. And you are starring as the human. It's the part I was born to play, baby. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Springfield Googleplex, the movie podcast for Simpsons fans. Each week, we talk about a movie parodied on The Simpsons. Maybe it was The Simpsons that introduced us to the film, or maybe when we finally saw we realized, hey, that's where that Simpson joke came from. Regardless, each week, we pick a movie that at least one of us hasn't seen, or hasn't seen in a while, watch it, and come together to discuss. I'm your host, Adam Scholes, and joining me as always is the Dr. Zayas to my bright eyes, my co-host, Nate Storing. How are you doing today, Bright Eyes? <laughs> no, I'm Bright Eyes. Are How you, you doing, Dr. Zayas? Um, I, I'm doing pretty well. I feel like Charlton Heston smoking a cigar on a spaceship. Yeah, that seems safe. There's nothing There's nothing combustible on yeah, a spaceship. Yeah, for sure. Well, to that point, this week we watched Planet of the Apes, the original Planet of the Apes, which you might remember from such Simpson episodes as, and get ready because this is a long list, <clears throat> Season 5's Rosebud. Bart Gets Famous and Deep Space Homer. Season 6 is Bart of Darkness and Bart's Girlfriend. Season 7's A Fish Called Selma and Homer Palooza. Season 8's In Marge We Trust. Season 9's Simpsons Tide. Season 11's Saddlesaur Galactica and Pygmalion. Season 12's Simpsons Safari. And Season 11's The Parent Rap. Whew. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. I think this is the most we've, the most of any of the movies we've done so far. Yeah, definitely. So, Adam, for people who haven't seen this movie and as the kind of the newcomer to the film, how would you mm-hmm. sum this movie up in in a sentence or so? Uh, Charlton Heston lands on a planet of apes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and and uh, and and okay. Then it's two hours to get to a really good twist. <laughs> okay yeah no i think that's that's fair yeah yeah i, I like i don't want to spoil anything but i didn't really like this movie really i am surprised yeah. okay well, watching your we'll notes into, come we'll up in the doc i thought i thought you were uh, enjoying it so that's gonna be interesting okay yeah we'll get into okay. it and that's what yeah that's why i texted you i said this is gonna be an interesting conversation because i think this is the first time we're gonna have like i'm hoping that by the end of this you can convince me that i'm wrong but Ooh. Okay. I did not like this movie very Challenge much. accepted. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I chose this film because it is a classic, of course, right? And mm-hmm. I, I'm trying to remember when I saw it, but I think it was probably in college when I was going through a phase of trying to educate myself about all these classic films, right? Because it's like right. I was starting to realize exactly the premise of this of this podcast, which is I had experienced all of these films secondhand right. through parodies and, and pop culture. Pop culture osmosis, I think, right. is, is is a great way to, to phrase it. Yeah, I love that. I was really just experiencing this osmosis and hadn't really actually like watched a lot of them. So... You know, right. I think one of the first ones, one of the early ones I watched was uh, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, right? Which again, yes. I mean, God, talk about a movie that's been parodied. I saw the, I think the director's cut in theaters when that was released. And man, it's it's fantastic in theaters. It's actually a movie that does hold my attention at home too, because it's very surprisingly like quippy in, in a very contemporary right. kind of way. And there's lots of action. 
it is long, but I think it's really good. And the other ones in the, the Man with No Name series also really good. But all that to say... So you should have watched those is what, is what we're saying. Right. So all that to say, <laughs> like that, I was on a kick of kind of like trapping right. down all these movies. And this was one of them that I knew, you know, had been uh, parodied to death, but it was also this classic movie. So that, that was kind of, I think that's my background with it. And I was really interested to revisit it, partly because, again, like of all of the movies we've watched so far, this is one of the ones that is not only parried the most times in the seasons we're looking at of The Simpsons, mm-hmm. but also I think it almost rivals Citizen Kane in terms of the total amount of the movie that is parodied in the, in oh, the Simpsons. Oh, interesting. Because there interesting. are all of the major beats, pretty much, in the entire movie, including ones that are not that well-known in pop culture, are parodied in The Simpsons. And, and I think the Twilight Zone DNA in this movie as well, which we'll talk a little mm-hmm. bit more about, also is is very core to the simpsons sensibility so for all those reasons i really wanted to watch this film but uh, what's your history beyond not having seen it before i mean that's really it like it's it's a movie that i guess i never really felt the need to see because like we sort of alluded to this pop culture osmosis i felt like i had already seen it Mm -hmm. and when i think about what actually happens in the movie like not a whole hell of a lot actually happens for a two-hour movie so it's like yeah i i feel like in a weird way that the the musical sequence from the simpsons that we're obviously going to get to i can see kind of distills the whole movie down that being said i am familiar with the reboot series not mm. the remake because this is there's this distinction there's the re, the tim burton remake with marky mark from like the early 2000s i think and then there was the rebooted sort of almost like a prequel series in a way yep and i saw i thought i saw the whole thing and it turns out after after i watched this movie i was like did i see all of those and i went and like checked and i didn't ever end up seeing the third one but yeah like so i'm i'm just sort of familiar with like the lore of planet of the apes but yeah it just it never again i think part of my cinematic education growing up is entirely based on my dad's taste mm. and my dad wasn't a big sci-fi guy like he was much more of like a comedy guy and so that's why i was like so familiar with all these like old classic comedies and then also you know sort of like the action-y adventure Bond. movies, the Bond movies. Yeah, but he he never really got into sci-fi. So like I saw Star Wars, but that was sort of it. So yeah, I think as a result, it didn't come up in my childhood. It didn't come up in high school film class. Uh, it didn't come up in university. So it just sort of never really, yeah, I never got around to it. And so I was I was intrigued to finally sit down to watch it and see if it held up. But Obviously, I didn't. (laughs) I also definitely grew up with other sci-fi stuff. Like we watched actually Star Trek The Next Generation pretty religiously in my household. Oh. Which is kind of maybe a bit surprising to you, uh, knowing my parents. It is a little surprising knowing your parents, but. They're neither of them are, are, well, my dad's kind of into sci-fi stuff. My mom's really not into sci-fi stuff, but it seemed to kind of strike this balance because it was, it, it was a drama. It was kind of heady. And I feel like the outer limits were kind of the same thing. Yeah, the more I think about it, the more that, like, if there was any sci-fi show that your parents would watch, like, I'm not surprised it would be Next Generation. But (laughs) but again, that was a show that I, like, not, never did anything for me, never really interested me. Like, I kind of, sci-fi is one of those things where I like 
science fiction in terms of like fiction that's about science stuff. Like, so as you know, I like, I'm a fan of, there's a Canadian show called Regenesis, which was all about like bioterrorism and stuff, which I love that movie contagion. So science fiction, not space science fiction kind of like interests me more. Right. But I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge sucker for, for any kind of dystopian sci-fi stuff, which is probably, which is more in the direction of where this goes. And, and I will say the opening sequence, the sort of prologue to the film, the pre-credit sequence gave me real Ridley Scott's alien vibes, which is a film that I do love. And I, that's sort of where my sci-fi allegiances lie Mm -hmm. with this sort of sci-fi thriller. Well, before we go too much further, why don't we like dig into the actual meat of the film? And I once again managed to find the summary of the film from the original press materials for Planet of the Apes. This, uh, you know, it's amazing what you can find on the internet these days. So it's a little bit long and it pretty much covers the entire plot. So (laughs) if you haven't seen the film, pay attention. And by the end of this, you will definitely feel like you have. So... Hurtled some 2,000 years through time and space, measured in terms of interstellar mathematics. Oh, dear God. Four American astronauts crash land in the wilderness of an unidentified planet when their spacecraft suffers a malfunction. The lone female in the quartet dies, but the male survivors trek across countless miles of arid desert until they discover life-supporting vegetation and stumble upon a subhuman populace living like animals in the woods. Their freedom is short-lived, however. For- Can I just say, this is in the press. Like, I'm going to see the movie. You don't need to give me the whole goddamn plot. Anyway. <laughs> Their freedom is short-lived, however, for they are captured by a band of mounted hunters, uniformed gorillas on horseback. They are separated from each other. Dodge is killed and ends up as a mounted specimen in the Simeon's Museum of Natural History. Landon is used as a laboratory specimen with his frontal lobe removed. Their leader, Taylor, played by Charlton Heston, is wounded in the throat and hospitalized for medical attention. Though temporarily mute, he is able to convince Dr. Zira and Cornelius, a young archaeologist, both of whom are chimpanzees, that he can speak, read, and write. Their interested tailor is strongly discouraged by Dr. Zaius, a stately orangutan who is one of the chiefs of state. When Zaius orders a frontal lobotomy on Taylor, Zira, Cornelius, and Lucius resent the infringement upon their freedom of thought and speech and arrange for Taylor's escape from captivity. Fleeing to the Forbidden Zone, where the spacecraft crashed. They are overtaken by Zaius and his guerrilla militiamen, but Taylor seizes Zaius as hostage, and the guerrillas are ordered to retreat. Zaius reveals his fear of human civilization, pointing out that alone among God's primates, the humans kill for sport, lust, and greed. The simian religion preaches that the human will make a desert of his home and yours. He should be driven back to his jungle lair, for he is the harbinger of death. Taylor offers to release Zaius unharmed. The latter will promise not to press charges of heresy and insubordination against Zira and Cornelius. And then the press kit literally says, we will not spoil the ending of the movie. (laughs) Letting everybody know there's a big twist to come in. Surprise. So anyway. Yeah. Yeah, big surprise. So that's the plot in full of Planet of the Apes. Except the best part. <laughs> Except for the best part. Yeah. And I will say that that does track with kind of what I got. I was sort of like making beat notes of mm-hmm. the film and then I got bored and then I kind of stopped paying attention. Yeah. It's not a plot heavy movie. It's a thought heavy movie, I guess. It's all about <laughs> themes and ideas and not so much about exposition and 
stuff happening. Yeah, that's that's fair. It, it's definitely more about these big philosophical ideas and then and then the production design. Right. <laughs> so yeah, a little bit more information about the movie too. I mean, it was released in February of 1968, directed by Franklin J. Schaefer, who I actually have not seen any of the other things he's directed. Okay, yeah, when his yeah. name came up, I was like, who the hell is this guy? Right, right. But he's, you know, so he has a long history in TV before Planet mm. of the Apes. And then just before this, he made another movie with Charlton Heston called The Warlord, which I have not seen. But probably the movie he's best known for is Patton. Oh. Yeah. So <laughs> Interesting. Ties, tying us back to our previous episode. Right. Exactly. And yet another movie that The Simpsons has uh, parodied a couple times. He also did Nicholas and Alexandra, which is a movie that I have not seen, but I'm familiar with. And The Boys from Brazil, also a movie mm. that has been parodied by The Simpsons. So that that was sort of, those were the things that stood out to me as as like, oh, okay, all right, I know I know this guy's work a little bit. You know, stars Charlton Heston. Again, lots of Simpsons connections. Uh, they seem to really love their Charlton Heston, right? Um, he's been in Ben-Hur and the Ten Commandments and other... Yeah, a lot of epic films of that era. Right, but, you know, again, those appear many times. And then another w- movie that's, almost like a long-form Twilight Zone episode, Soylent Green. Again, it's been parodied many, many times at The Simpsons. I found some interesting information about the writing of the movie, too. So it's based on a book by Pierre Boulle, who's a French writer, and it was first brought to, into a screenplay by Rod Serling, who's best known for The Twilight mm-hmm. Zone. Apparently, he, he wrote nearly uh, 40 drafts of the screenplay, which is, which is bananas, no pun intended. And, and I think... <laughs> You know, the author of the book basically thought that it couldn't be adapted to screenplay. Right. Um, so, Which certainly in 1968, it doesn't seem like something that would easily have come to fruition on screen based on the sort of technological requirements. Right, totally. And also the story was a little bit different. In the original story, for example, the apes actually were a very high-tech society. They were more similar to like human civilization of the day. And the end of the book is completely different. It doesn't turn out that the planet of the apes is Earth. They travel back to Earth, and it's been taken over by apes. Right. Um, Which I think, I might be wrong, but I think that's the ending of the Tim Burton one. I'm pretty sure he crash lands back on Earth, and it's an ape society, kind of inexplicably. (laughs) Now, I I just, I'm looking at your notes. I also am noticing that the original director was supposed to be Blake Edwards. Yeah, I, and I'm not familiar with, with Blake Edwards, really. So Blake Edwards is the guy who directed The Pink Panther. And, oh, another connection here. And like all the Inspector Clouseau movies, pretty much all of the famous Peter Sellers movies are Blake Edwards movies. Huh. And he also directed one of my favorites, Victor Victorio, with his wife, Julie Andrews. But he's very much famous for like comedy not for serious sci-fi dramas right well and that's the thing is is like he kind of first decided that the book could be a movie interesting okay and then it kind of changed hands over over time gotcha so when uh, franklin uh, schaffner when he came on board one of the first things that he had to do was actually kind of change the whole era that the that the ape society takes place in because interesting okay basically the high tech stuff was just going to be too expensive <laughs> right so that's why the society that the apes live in it's kind of a weird mashup of eras which you know we could talk about a little bit more but it's kind of hard to pinpoint what level of human civilization it's supposed to be exactly so one really funny point to me adam did 
did you notice what the the MPAA rating for this movie is? Well, so uh, I watched it on Disney Plus of all places because huh. that was where I could stream it for free here in Canada. Uh-huh. And according to Disney Plus, it's rated G. Yeah, that's, which that is, is correct. Shock is it's kind bizarre. of shocking. Yeah, because I mean, I guess. The violence that it, well, no, there's there is blood, so like the violence is pretty tame, but it's not that tame, and it's certainly you know it's disturbing. Like it's a disturbing movie. <laughs> yeah, the content is is complicated enough that I wouldn't like think of it in terms of like other G-rated movies, like I don't know, Snow White and Toy Story, which mm-hmm. I, I mean, I guess all those movies have like a little bit of a dark side too. But yeah, no, I, I G was surprising. I mean, this like like the his this guy's the main character's crewmates. One of them gets lobotomized, and the other mm-hmm. one gets gets like stuffed. He gets taxidermied. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know. Not yeah. to mention the fact that, like, the you know the the big twist is that humans destroyed the world with nuclear weapons, and and it it, it turned into this like ape society. It's a pretty disturbing movie. <laughs> well, even even right from the get go, like the only <laughs> sorry women, the only female crewmate happens to be the one that dies, and she's like this dis- like decrepit, shriveled raisin of a woman, and like yeah. that image was pretty disturbing, and that's in the first like fifteen minutes. So yeah, I I, I don't think this is a movie for kids necessarily. It, it's but. also uh, I believe the only G rated movie under the MPAA to have uh, nudity in it. And interestingly and surprisingly, it's male nudity. Yeah, there were a lot of butts in this movie. There were a lot of butts. And that was actually in my notes. And, and I think there might there might even be a moment of full frontal male nudity very briefly. It's kind of yeah. hard to tell, but, yeah, but in, it's, in, it, and it's not in a sexual context. But it was surprising. No. I was very surprised. The HD print allows you to see a lot more of Charlton Heston than I think any of us needed to <laughs> see. Yeah, <laughs> um, but that's uh, you know that's the beauty of HD. I can't imagine what the 4K version is going to look. So yeah, I mean that this movie is rated G. It's kind of bizarre, but may also speak to its popularity. I think a little bit. Yeah, for sure. You know, I mean this movie, and and apparently all of the 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 first five movies in this series all topped uh, the box office when they were released. Wow. And of course, it's received lots of accolades of a sort, you know, it's, it's featured on lots of lists, including you mentioned in our last episode, the American Film Institute series of 100 Years, 100, yeah. whatever. So yep. uh, this was, of course, included in their list of 100 Years, 100 Thrills in American mm, movies. Okay. So there you go. Go figure. The other distinction this movie has, which I didn't know until I, I started reading up on it, is that it was one of the first movies to have large scale merchandising tie-in. Even yeah. before Star Wars and before the hmm. revival of Star Trek, you had Planet of the Apes. So I think between that and the G rating, it makes a lot of sense that people who were kids at the time this movie came out really remember it. Totally. Because how many other movies like this one that that is, again, like pretty intense sci-fi content, like really crazy yeah. stuff. How many movies were you allowed to see like that and that had all these awesome tie-ins that are targeted right at you as a kid you know well and one of the things that i wanted to discuss when we get to the whole like simpsons aspect but i also imagine based on the era that the film came out and the era of television i wonder if this was one of those movies that was on tv a lot Mm -hmm. you know my dad always talks about how wizard of oz and sound of music those were movies that were shown every single year and like it was event television and you sat down and you watched them as a family and it was a big deal 
there's something about this movie that just feels like a movie that probably ended up on TV a lot. And that's part of why it's so ingrained in the pop culture. Totally. I, I, yeah, I don't know for sure about how frequently it was on, but I do know that it, it started to be aired on television in the early 1970s. I think it was 1973. Right. And so, so that, yeah, it took like almost then, a decade, but once it was there, I bet, I bet you're right that it's something that was, you know, not only was it potentially on fairly often in the grand scheme of things, but it was probably like event viewing, right? Like that you would, yeah. what, when you found out it was on, man, you're going to watch it. So, but it also, I think like, again, speaking to when the year it came out, but then also knowing that that was when it started to show up in syndication and stuff that sort of aligns with the era of when a lot of those Simpson writers and directors would have been kind of coming of age. And so therefore it would have influenced their taste and they probably watched a lot. So it, it, it all is sort of making sense as to why this ends up being in the top five most referenced films of the Simpsons. So yeah, for sure. Uh, that's something else that we actually haven't mentioned yet is just that in our giant spreadsheet of all of the references that we found in The Simpsons for the first 13 seasons, you know, this comes in at what, number four? I think it's number four, yeah. Yeah. yeah it's so, like, and behind like The Wizard of Oz and what were some of the, like... Ahead of it, you have Wizard of Oz, Star Wars, although it's, it, we're, che- we're cheating a little bit there because... I, We're not picking a specific Star Wars, right? Exactly, and often the 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 things they're parodying are kind of more the universe and not like specific yeah. moments from the, the movie. After that, again, this is a real surprise to me. Godzilla, actually. Oh yeah, that is surprising. Beats out Planet of the Apes. Huh. So so you know, I I was very surprised by that. Some of the you know references uh, for those other ones are quite small. It's just like right. a a sound effect or a mention and things like that. But Planet of the Apes is one of the ones, again, like I said, that has the most of the movie actually represented. It's not just little mentions. It's whole scenes taken out of the movie. Whole chunks, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's dig into the film a little bit and some of the things we liked and disliked. The, the first thing that came to mind that really sort of piqued my interest was the first time that our heroes get captured by the apes. And really is the first moment we actually see the titular apes of said planet of the apes. I found this scene like really, really, it was exciting, kind of scary. It it worked really, really well. And like, I've always said that there's the funny thing about these movies and this era, like I don't know when quote-unquote modern filmmaking takes hold. I don't know if it's a slow transition or what, but there is a distinct period where movies stop feeling old. Yeah. And I think it's like somewhere in like the mid-70s where like editing becomes a little more... It's, I mean, Star Wars had a huge input. Yeah, that, but like know? the editing becomes a little bit more tight. You know, there's a little less shoe leather, a little less like, let's just show people like moving from point A to point B. A li- the dialogue becomes a little less radio play. And this film is sort of falling into that like tail end of that era, but it still very much has that sort of distinctly 60s pacing. Yeah. But this scene in particular felt very modern, felt very frenetic, felt very tense, very exciting. It has the sort of like the few moments of blood and gore that are in the film, mm. I found it really impactful. And uh, unfortunately, I don't think there were many other moments quite like it in the film. But yeah, I I really liked, liked that scene. Yeah. 
No, I think you're right. There's a lot of film that leads up to this scene, right? <laughs> yeah. And and you get you get kind of the the early stuff on the spaceship with just Charlton Heston kind of doing a monologue about uh, basically how you know crappy and screwed up humanity is, right? right. And and that's like all that. There's a lot of foreshadowing in that scene of like where yes. everything's going to go the discovery of the apes and then the ending it's all foreshadowed in that first scene and it's also it's also setting up the sort of like time dilation situation to right. sort of explain how this is all possible that they kind of dig into an interstellar as well it's like oh well you know in terms of earth years it's been 2000 years but on the ship we've only aged like 3 weeks or whatever yeah 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 Right. Uh, Lightspeed travel, man. But it, they don't dwell on it, but they at least are setting it up. And then, you know, they spend, you know that they spend even more time because they wake up with beards. Uh, <laughs> right. And so, you know, like they crash land. That scene's kind of exciting because like there's water rushing in and trying to escape all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. But then after that, they just wander around this desert for like, it's got to be like 15 <laughs> minutes. And it's just... They're, they're just like wandering around, scrabbling down hillsides that, you know, like at one point, like a boulder almost falls in them, but like it has nothing to do with the plot. You know, there's just a lot of that sort of stuff. But then like, the, I, I think it does start picking up when they see these uh, scarecrows. Yes. And like, and that's your first hint that there's like something else going on, right? There's people. That was, that was genuinely creepy because yeah. like it gave a little bit of like a little Wicker Man, a little Blair Witch-esque mm -hmm. vibe. There was a great shot. I don't know if it happens before the Scarecrows or shortly after the Scarecrows, but they're walking and our main character is sort of in the foreground and like in the distance you can see some people very, very small. They're being followed by something Yeah, and you're not really sure what. Are, is it the titular apes? Is it something else? You know, we don't we don't know, but that's sort of it's building this tension, which I I did I did think that was effective. Like you said, I it definitely goes on for way too long, and Charlton Heston is a real dick throughout all that yeah. point of the movie. Not like, but <laughs> you get you get some really cool production design, some cool like '60s eras special effects, like the lightning effect was really neat, mm. and then of course you, them finding life, which sort of reminded me of Wally. -E. So there is some like interesting world building going on in that that part, and then you get to see the water and the naked butts. The, Way right. more naked butts than I was anticipating. And then we realize, oh, these guys aren't alone. And there are sort of these feral humans on this planet. Right. And I was surprised by that because I really didn't, again, not knowing anything. I was like, oh, well, this must be, these are going to be the apes. And I, I, in my mind, I was like, wow, this like, they were really saving the ape makeup for just like the lead actors. eh? And then I realized, oh, no, like there, there is actual other humans on this planet, which I was not genuinely was not anticipating so that was kind of a interesting surprise but yeah this is the first moment that you really get to see the apes and you know they kind of un unveil it very gradually first it's just like you see their weapons right and mm -hmm. like and they're on horseback and you don't know that that necessarily it is going to be apes until all of a sudden there's a shot and like they they whip pans into position it's like the gun comes in and it's being carried by a gorilla and you're like oh holy crap yeah it's a really good moment and mm -hmm. they i I, th I feel like throughout the movie they really use like horses especially as this sort of uh symbol of civilization right because right. like that's something that like you would never see on earth is like a gorilla riding a, a horse you only see people totally. riding horses so like that moment sort of solidifies 
that's not a normal gorilla. They're civilized somehow. They have weapons and, and they've tamed horses. And that sort of tells you that there's probably even more going on than what you're just seeing in that shot, which I like. You alluded to this, that you were quite impressed by the the makeup for, for the, the apes and the sort of production design in general. So Yeah. One of the few things I did know about this movie was the sort of groundbreaking makeup effects. And it's interesting that, so the makeup artist on this was a guy named John Chambers, who I was familiar with because of the movie Argo. Mm. I don't, did you ever see Argo? Yeah, yeah. What does Argo mean? I don't know. You don't know? It means Argo fuck yourself. Yeah, so for those who are sort of unfamiliar, Argo is a movie about, it's based on a real life story it was during the Iranian hostage crisis. There were these Americans who were about to be taken hostage and were they managed to flee and were hiding in the Canadian embassy. And I think it was either the CIA or the FBI, I can't remember exactly which, alongside uh, Canadian intelligence, basically came up with this plan of they're going to go to Iran under the guise of we're shooting a science fiction movie and we need these people. And that's how they were basically going to get the American hostages out of Iran. But anyway, because they were making the science fiction movie, they needed someone with some clout to sort of make it seem as though this was a real Hollywood production and not a ruse by intelligence agencies. And so they hired John Chambers to come aboard and he designed like the special makeup effects for this fake space epic called Argo. So anyway, that's that's why I was sort of like familiar with this character because they they allude to the fact that they're like, oh, the guy who did Planet of the Apes and yeah, he sort of became this like legend for both his involvement in Planet of the Apes and then also the the Argo plot. So, huh? I didn't know that it was the same. I I'd seen the movie, but I'd forgotten that that's that it was the same person. That's really yeah, cool. yeah. But again, I, I you know last week when you teed up this film, you sort of said the special effects and the makeup doesn't fully hold up. But I would beg to differ. I think the thing that definitely is obvious is that like the lip sync isn't very good. Like the, right. the mouths of the apes are sort of they're they're protruding like ape apes mouths kind of do. And at times you can actually see like the lips and the teeth of the humans behind the fake lips and the teeth of the apes. Right. And their mouths don't quite move naturally or whatever. But otherwise, like I think they did a really, really good job and the the level of detail like there's a there was a close-up on one of the apes hands and like obviously they have all this fur but like the knuckles and everything looked like ape like Like it was just i was really genuinely impressed and it's sort of of that era of classic special effects where computers were not even in the equation so it was like you had to figure out how to do it for real and do it convincingly and these guys were the best at doing this. Yeah, this is the thing. I actually love that there are moments where it's a little bit off, right? Like that you, right. the, the lip sync's a little off. My, one of my favorite things like this is uh, when Cornelius and, and Dr. Zira kiss. And it happens a couple mm. times throughout the movie, but they're just kind of mashing their, their mouths together. Totally. But like those, those, I find those moments really charming. It's like, you know, with a painting, you, when you can see the brush strokes, right? It's not seamless, but but yeah. that almost just enhances how much damn work goes into the illusion. It's sort of this thing that I've been saying for a while of like, the unfortunate reality of today is that nothing is amazing in cinema anymore because yeah. since CGI has gotten so good and now literally anything is possible, when you watch something, you don't go how'd they do that? Because you're just like, oh, well, they just did it in a computer. Whereas like when we were kids, we were coming of age 
in the last sort of decade where that was possible. But there were definitely movies that I watched where I was like, how did they do that? Yeah. Like, and then you would watch the behind the scenes and you'd be like, that's amazing. That's so cool. Like I sort of cite Lord of the Rings as the last of the holy shit, how did they do this? Like yeah. putting putting actors that you know are all full-sized actors, but making one look like a giant and one looking like a, a, a hobbit. Like there's something about that artifice, like you say, that you because it's not photorealistic or like in the uncanny valley, like you know that there's no way it's happening for real but they're they're still sort of achieving something that makes it seem all the more impressive yeah. that you don't get with today's sort of CGI and stuff because it's like, well, we can do anything now with computers. Right. So it's like, right. yeah, there is something very charming about the moments that aren't quite perfect. Yeah. For me, the the one part that I don't love as much about the production design is the city that, that you know, that, that it sort of takes place in. It's very cool in some ways, but it also kind of feels like the Flintstones. <laughs> It's very, yes, it's, it's very, very like the stone age, you know, like just big slabs of rock and everything's a little askew. And like I was saying before, it's a little hard to kind of place like what era is this supposed to take it place in mm-hmm. for these apes, right? It's like they talk in a contemporary kind of way and their religion kind of seems like it's maybe like the Renaissance, but they have right. modern guns and they live in stone huts. So it's just kind of like this crazy mishmash of stuff, which on the one hand, I'm kind of like, I don't know what they're trying to go for here exactly. But then on the other hand, it it weirdly feels like a very complete world because they have, they have a religion, they have some kind of like societal structure that's sort of hinted at and they have, and you do see like a pretty big set. So Again, I, it's kind of in between for me. See, that's interesting because because I kind of feel the opposite in terms of the completeness of it. It to me, it felt kind of I don't want to say empty, but you get the f- sense that they blew all their budget on makeup, and then they're yeah. like, "Oh shit, we now have to like build this world." Yeah, and the fl- the Flintstones comparison is perfect because it really like it does look like a live action Flintstones movie. Again, I I recognize that there's sort of like the technological limitations of 1968. If this were done today, you know, you would be able to, with CGI, like clone the apes. So there would be like hundreds of thousands of them and not just like 30. But there's sort of like an emptiness to everything. I don't know. It's hard to put my finger on it, but I think it just it feels small. I think is is what it is. It's like, you know, what what's realized there is pretty impressive in some ways. You never get the sense that there's like a bigger ape society. You never get any hint of that. It's that classic, you know, suspension of disbelief. Oh, isn't it convenient that because, again, it's not super populated. They just so happen to crash in the one spot where it is populated. And like I texted you this. Isn't it convenient that they just so happen to speak English? Like and I wasn't sure if this was like a hunt for Red October situation where it's like, well, the apes aren't speaking English, but we have to understand what they're saying. So they're speaking, right. but like, no, they very clearly are speaking English. In because the, in the they, reality of the movie, it's very clear that they are because because Charlton Heston's character writes in English at one point. Yes, and they exactly. understand it in the in the lore of the movie. Like once you know the ending, it actually makes sense that the apes speak English and that there are humans on this supposedly alien planet. But the thing that doesn't make any sense is that Charlton Heston's character can't figure it out until the end. It's like he crash lands on an alien planet, but everyone's speaking English and there are humans yeah. there. And he and it yeah. takes him until the very end of the movie to be like, this is Earth? <laughs> 
we're in the United States. Planet? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I could maybe see him not necessarily so, grokking that he's in apparently New York City, right. but otherwise, I mean, yeah. Like, I mean, like all it would have taken was like uh, a scene where he's like, "Oh, humans must have got here first. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he he somehow rationalizes it in his head that like the humans that are there must have traveled there, and he they got off course and. So they arrived late and everything got screwed up and he doesn't know how, right? Or whatever. There could have, they could have written it away, but instead they just don't mention it. So anyway, you know, one of the bright spots of this movie, I think, is the cinematography. Yeah, yeah. That was something that I did notice. Again, on the whole, this isn't Stanley Kubrick. It's not a visually flashy film, but there are moments where the cinematography is really effective and really does the heavy lifting in terms of the storytelling. Like in that first sort of like capture sequence, again, there's sort of like some handheld cinematography and stuff that really like ups the ante and stuff. Totally. And I think, you know, one of the cool things in that landing sequence is that I feel like they're using the cinematography to, again, get at the themes of the movie of this, Right. right. Where, you know, they're sort of tumbling towards earth and there's at least one shot where literally the landscape is turned upside down. Yeah. It's a visual metaphor that I feel like they're putting in there very intentionally because they even at some point someone says something about, you know, the world being turned upside down and all this kind of stuff. Right. Like you said, it's not flashy, but I do feel like there are some really nice touches that enhance the storytelling in a very subtle way. So it was the cinematographer is named Leon Shamroy. And what's interesting about him is that he actually shares the record with another gentleman named Charles Lang for the most Oscar nominations for cinematography. And if wow. you look here, it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 nominations Holy and bowling. four wins. Wow. And he worked on now again, this is, he predominantly worked in like the early era of, of films. So a lot of these films I'm not super familiar with, but the ones I am familiar with are movies like The King and I, mm. South Pacific, Cleopatra, the the famously epic Elizabeth Taylor movie. Yeah, like he's had quite the career, so it it's it's no surprise that the cinematography is what it is when it's coming from the most nominated and it looks like uh share, yeah, he's also shares the the record for most wins. With, with another cinematographer named Joseph Ruttenberg. So most nominated and most winningest cinematographer in Oscar history. Wow. So wow. nothing to scoff at, that's for sure. Yeah, for sure. In terms of the editing side of things, one of the things I noticed is that there are basically like no fades at all, you know, and no, no fade outs, nothing. It's just straight cuts all the way through once you get into the movie proper. Which I thought was interesting. You don't see that, especially because there are moments where time passes, but they don't use that sort of typical film visual language of fading out to say, oh, okay, now time is passing. So I thought that was interesting. I I didn't necessarily notice it until you pointed that out, but you're right. I mean, I guess it sort of also implies this is all sort of happening within a tight timeline. But yeah, to sort of limit yourself to the most basic of editing choices... It is definitely an interesting one. Yeah, I feel like what it all adds up to in terms of the cinematography and the editing is this feeling that even though you're in this fantastical world and like the acting is also like pretty over the top at times, um, yeah. the editing and the cinematography tell you that this is 
almost documentary in style. Right. Right. It's yes. like it's shaky cam and there's no sort of film artistry in the editing. That's obvious. It's just straight cuts. And so yeah. you feel like you're like right in the middle of it. You know, one of my my favorite scenes in the movie is uh, one that I feel like doesn't necessarily get as as, as parodied, actually which is a court scene, which mm. is, which is kind of a, you know, it's a farce, right? It's, you yeah. have, you have, you know, Charlton Heston is like stripped naked in front of the court and the two <laughs> apes that have studied him and have discovered that he can talk and kind of at least have some modicum of respect for him or are defending him. And then Dr. Zayas and the other, the rest of the tribunal are, are trying to refute reality and basically say, no, no, you know, yeah, he, he, it's just a trick. He can't talk and, oh, well, he couldn't possibly be from another planet and all this kind of stuff. One of the interesting things that I found out about when I was doing some research for this is that this was the scene that was actually added by Michael Wilson, who was one of the screenwriters that took on the screenplay after Ron Sterling. And one of the interesting connection there is that he was actually one of the, the many people in Hollywood that was snapped up in the McCarthy years um, oh, the Hollywood blacklist. Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, for uh, supposedly being a communist, basically. Right. Right. And so it's interesting that he would be the one to add the scene of a sort of uh, a joke of a court case. Right. Right. And, and have this person who's stripped naked and not believed this sort of unfair hearing process and all that kind of stuff. So I thought totally. that was that was really cool. And probably the best moment in that scene actually was not in the original script, which is, you know, when they're trying to make the argument, I think Charlton Heston at this point is making the argument, the tribunal does the classic, like, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil, right? It's it's kind of subtle, but like, if you know the symbolism, it's very clearly there. And it's just such a perfect summary of what's going on in that scene. Well, speaking of Heston, and we kind of like touched on it, I think part of what I struggled with with this movie is that this hero that we're supposed to be essentially rooting for is a giant dick. Like he's not <laughs> he's not a nice guy. Like in that sort of first 15 minutes that we talked about where they're just sort of exploring the planet, there's another actor who I swear to you I thought it was Sean Connery. He looks like a lot like him. I texted Nate and I was like, is Sean Connery in this movie? And you just didn't mention that? And he's like, <laughs> no. And I looked it up. And even if you look on IMDb, his photo, like his main photo is a is obviously a publicity photo from this movie. And it looks like young Sean Connery with a beard. I swear to God that I, I was like, how did the, anyway, it doesn't matter. But the point is, he doesn't know that they're necessarily far, far away from Earth and that they're actually 2,000 years ahead of when they left. And he's sort of struggling to come to terms with this. And Heston is just basically telling him, everything you know and love is dead. Like, stop being a baby. And he's like, I, I guess you could maybe say he's sort of putting on this machismo, like he has no care in the world, which this kind of character was maybe more common in the, that era, like the sort of John Wayne you know, takes no guff kind of kind of character. But to me, he just comes across as a total asshole. And so when he ends up being the one to survive and go through all this, like, I'm not really rooting for him because I just think he's such a dick. Yeah. And, and I think the film genuinely suffers by not having a character for the audience to connect with in a meaningful manner. Yeah. No, I... I if that makes sense. I think that's totally fair. I think... 
the I think the writing of his character is is actually one of the things that really clearly connects to the Twilight Zone sort of philosophy of storytelling in mm. that I took everything he said in those scenes at face value. I don't think he's putting on a brave face. I think that character really believes what he's saying, which is he hates humanity and he left on this mission because he believes that there must be something better in the universe. And right. he's kind of a tragic character in some ways in, in the true sense of tragedy, not like, oh, it's sad, but like he has a right. tragic flaw. Right. And, and it's that he's a, he's a misanthrope. And the moment that kind of crystallizes this for me is at, at the very end, before the final twist, right? They've beaten Dr. Zayas and his gorillas and his literal gorillas. And, you know, Dr. Zayas is all tied up, but Dr. Zayas tells Cornelius to reach into his pocket and pull out one of the scrolls. Right. And he tells him to read the scroll. And, you can see, again, it's, it's, it's almost like that moment in The Karate Kid where Johnny's uh, looking at his coach when the coach is telling him to sweep the leg, right? There's this reaction shot of Charlton Heston listening to this and recognizing that he's basically hearing himself talk back at him, right? Mm. Where actually this like holy text that is this dogma that the apes have been following and therefore oppressing him is actually what he, exactly what he was saying at the beginning right, of the movie. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, and huh. so like he, I, I totally hear what you're saying that he's like not a sympathetic hero at all, and especially early on, you're kind of like this guy's a dick. But that's the that's what they're that's the whole reason why he's saying all that stuff at the beginning. I think is that they're right. setting up this sort of bookend where at the end he's going to hear it spouted back to him by the apes. Well, it's interesting because obviously in the last oh, let's say twenty years, especially in television, the antihero has become a very sort of common trope. It's, you know, starting with like your Tony Soprano and your Walter White, you know, like the, this has become a very common trend, but they've gotten better at writing them to yeah. create A, those tragic characters and B, yes, they're an anti-hero, but they have their sort of like this compelling undercurrent, you know, with Tony Soprano, it's like, well, he's a mob boss, but he also like, he's in therapy and, you know, the ducks make him cry and all this stuff. And, and I'm, I think what's interesting is maybe if this were a series where we got more time with Heston's character, yeah, it would be more effective. But I'm also willing to concede that watching the movie in retrospect and knowing the person Heston himself became or perhaps always was, but yeah. like knowing his association with the NRA and like my introduction to Charlton Heston, the actor is very much not from Planet of the Apes, but from Bowling for Columbine. Yeah. From my cold, dead hands. I, I do wonder if my whole perception of him as a quote-unquote hero is being colored by Charlton Heston, the man, because that's my introduction to him before any of his characters. But I will say, now that you sort of have talked me through it, that it's like there is more to it than perhaps... I was willing to give it credit for, but, but I mean, he's still a really big dick. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, and here's the flip side too. I feel like it could work if either it, you know, it was a series and there's more time with the character. It could also work if it's shorter. Right. And yeah. I, think, I think that this is the, the, maybe the pitfall of movie length Twilight Zone <laughs> episode, right? Is that like, you can stick with a totally unlikable character like Charlton Heston's character for a half hour or an hour. Yep. But, yep. but when it's a two-hour th- affair, 
then then you're kind of like, do I really want to spend this much this long with this character? Like, you just need a taste in some ways. So I feel like that that is also maybe part of it is just it shows the roots of of where this kind of writing comes from. If this were a half hour Twilight Zone episode, I think I would love it. But as a two hour movie, to me, it doesn't work. That it's it's an interesting enough concept that doesn't need to be stretched out and sort of like hit you over the head for two hours with it. Yeah. I, I sort of said this before and I'll say it again. I think the Simpsons musical version of Planet of the Apes is the perfect distillation of Planet of the Apes. And having seen that, I don't really need to see the movie because <laughs> everything that that left out is really just kind of like shoe leather. You get the moment where the where the apes discover that the man can talk. And then you get the moment where the man discovers that he's been on Earth this whole time. Those are the two best parts of the movie. <laughs> We're done. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoy this movie, but I definitely feel like there is a shorter version of this movie in in there that would probably yeah. be even more compelling. And like even 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 a ninety minute edit, I feel like if you just tightened everything up, it yeah. could be. A lot and, now, and I'll admit, I'm a very dumb person, and I tend to not like movies that aren't plot heavy. I, I was raised being told that filmmaking is storytelling; story comes first above all else. And so, like, I'm not super into character-driven movies or visual, like movies that have no story but are just beautiful pictures. Like, okay, you want to make a beautiful picture, make a picture. Like, that's always been my philosophy. So, like, it's just maybe not to my taste. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm being too hard on it. So before we dive into our Simpsons episodes to talk a little bit about how they've approached this material, uh, let's Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about some of the parts that maybe seem like Simpsons jokes, but aren't, that were not featured in The Simpsons. One of my favorites, which I kind of talked about at the very beginning of of this episode, was just that at the very beginning of the movie, Charlton Heston is sitting on a spaceship smoking a cigar, uh, which I think is probably the most 60s version of the future you could imagine, you know, at a time yeah. when you could like smoke on airplanes and all that kind of stuff. But it's sort of like, you know, um, the modern luxury of smoking a cigar, but we're doing it in space. So I thought that was kind of funny. Were there any any moments that sort of jumped out at you that, that felt like uh, had that sort of Simpson sensibility? I think Heston in general, the casting of Troy McClure as the Charlton Heston character is perfect because Troy McClure is supposed to be this kind of like washed up Hollywood has been who was popular in the 70s and then has sort of been coasting ever since. I'm not super deep on Heston's entire career, although as we alluded to, he was in like lots of epics in the like 50s and 60s and then becomes the head of the NRA apparently. But yeah, like there's just something about that character, like this sort of the brash, overly confident, very masculine, that trope. It's so over the top and so ridiculous that that in and of itself just, and his performance in general feels maybe not even like Troy McClure-ish, almost more like Sideshow Bob-ish. Oh, interesting. Like the sort of very projected, like he has this maniacal laugh and there's like a bravado to him that's very kind of like Sideshow Bob. So yeah, his whole performance just sort of feels borderline caricature-ish. Like it's almost like a Mel Brooks-y kind of parody in and of itself. Parody without being a parody. Yeah. So 
Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. You know, every time I look at him, I, I, that the line, you know, why they make that one Muppet out of leather? That's not a leather Muppet. That's Troy McClure. <laughs> that, that I always think about that when I, whenever I see Charlton Neston on screen, totally. he's got that look where he's, he's just got these wrinkles and he's always a little bit shiny in a particular yep. way that he looks like he's made out of leather. It's not The Simpsons, but I also get strong uh, Zap Brennigan vibes from Futurama. Yes. Um, and Which, for those who aren't familiar, Zap Brannigan is this character who they originally wrote for Phil Hartman. Phil Hartman tragically passed away before they could make it. And so I'm pretty sure it's Billy Zane. No, Billy Zane is the guy from Titanic. It's Billy... Billy West. And he, like he flat out admits he's like, I'm just basically doing a Phil Hartman impression. Right, right. Um, Definitely sounds yes, like him. But the character too, you know, he's got kind of a Captain Kirk sort of thing going on, but there's also definitely like a strong, you know, whatever he is, Captain Taylor or whatever, Charlton Heston in this role in there too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's one line in particular where where <laughs> he's talking about the, the, the woman who died on his spaceship. Yes. And, you know, in transit. And he says something like, she was to be the new Eve with our hot and eager help, of course, which which is a very just oh so gross, so creepy. The writing and the delivery is just a potent combination of misogyny and <laughs> yeah, sixties um, six Bond era misogyny. Yeah, and, well, yeah, like I mean, as we said, the so the there's only like two. Well, there's three women in this movie. One dies in the first five minutes. Right. The other one is completely mute and exists solely as eye candy. Yeah. And then the other one, admittedly, is a brilliant scientist, but she's also an ape. (laughs) That's right. She's wearing ape makeup. Yeah. Women aren't particularly well represented in this film. Right. But that moment was very much like, uh, I felt like a Zap Brannigan line almost uh, taken right out of Futurama. So I like that. And then the the other one that comes to mind was in that, that courtroom scene that I like so much, where the prosecutor basically asked for permission to talk to Charlton Heston about one particular topic. And uh, Dr. Zayas says, fine, but do not turn this hearing into a farce, which felt <laughs> kind of straight out of Dr. Strange love of the sort of... You can't fight it here. This is the war. Right, room. exactly. Yeah, it's totally. like, well, of course, the hearing's already a farce, right? And yeah, so exactly. I, I like that. I thought that was a fun moment, too. Well, so now let's dig into the sort of Simpsons take on all of this. It's interesting. I watched the, the, the episode that we're probably going to talk about at most length because it features a whole musical number, A Fish Called Selma. I watched that episode with the commentary. And again, David Silverman, who's the supervising director and is probably one of the most famous directors to come out of The Simpsons, he says, you know, yeah, it's Planet of the Apes, you know, one of the greatest science fiction movies of all time. And the writers are like, yeah, if you haven't seen it, you have to see it. Like there, there's this love and reverence for this film that I found particularly surprising because again, I didn't enjoy the movie, but it definitely, the way they talk about it is in this way that I'm familiar with, with the movies that I talk about with that sort of love and affection and reverence for, where I saw it at a formative part of my youth. It may not be a great movie, but it's just, it's so important to me that you, that it then becomes sort of like, almost like a defining characteristic of who I am. And I get the feeling that this movie is that for a lot of those writers. In fact, like one of the writers, and you even mentioned this in, in our notes, Dana Gould, like he is a like diehard Planet of the Apes fan. 
to the point where I think he even had like a model of Dr. Zayas in his like backyard or something. Oh, wow. Like, like he is. Yeah, he's very, very big into 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 this series. So, yeah. And I think even actually um, for the 50th anniversary in 2018, I think Dana Gould wrote a graphic novel that's an adaptation oh. of the Rod Serling screenplay. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so I thought that was really cool. And it draws on like the original concept art and makeup tests and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I thought that was really, really cool. But yeah, like clearly holds this place of reverence among many of the writers. And I think, you know, like part of it is that like they're also all Twilight Zone fans, right? And, totally. And this is absolutely in the mold of that in terms of what it's kind of playing on. It's, it is classic sci-fi in that there's a huge amount of social commentary going on, right? It's kind of grappling also with some philosophical questions about human nature and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So it's not just like technology for technology's sake and like flashy things happening. Like I think about the reboot of the Star Trek movies, right? Which I actually kind of enjoy, but they're- Yeah, same here. But they don't have, they don't grapple with the same kinds of stuff. Right. No, and they're a little more flashy and action packed and less political and right. Digging into the things that made Star Trek kind of different from Star Wars, essentially. Right. Exactly. And so, you know, no, no shade on that. But I think that that's the taste of the writers is the stuff that is digging into exactly all of that stuff. And then I think on top of that, you know, one of the reasons that it gets parried a lot in The Simpsons is also that it has these bite sized moments that also can be taken out of context or, and really stand on their own as memorable things, right? Like, you know, that moment where he says, Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. It's a great moment. Like, it's a really totally. good moment. And because he's been silent at this point for like 15 minutes of just like him not being able to talk, struggling to communicate, running away, all this stuff. And then he finally lets loose and his delivery on that line is great. And their reactions are great. So yeah. many one-liners, you know, one of the ones that actually isn't even used on the Simpsons, at least in the first 13 seasons is when Charlton Heston's yelling, it's a madhouse, a madhouse. <laughs> yeah. And he's yeah. being sprayed by the hose. I mean, like, you know, that stuff is so memorable. And, and, and there's lots of great visual moments too, like that. So I think all of that makes it really like great fodder for parody. Well, not only that, it's also like the first, well, I don't know that it's the first, but it's certainly the first that comes to mind, like sci-fi series. Like you said, there were four or five sequels of varying success. But, you know, if you liked the first Planet of the Apes, you probably went and saw a lot of those. And, you know, the sequel business doesn't really start to ramp up until the 80s when you've got your Star Wars, you've got your Indiana Jones, then you have you know, your horror franchises, like your Friday 13th, your Nightmare on Elm Street, and so on and so forth. But you pointed out a reference that I didn't even think about because it's in an episode that is mostly parodying Citizen Kane. Yeah, for sure. I love this ending. The The episode is Rosebud from season five. And as you said, it's basically a parody of Citizen Kane with Mr. Burns as Kane, and he loses his beloved teddy bear Bobo. And as it turns out, of course, Maggie has Bobo. And at the end of the episode, they're finally reunited. But after the story is basically resolved, you kind of flash forward into a (laughs) dystopian future. And maybe we could just play the clip and, and then we can chat a little bit more about it.
<sighs> Bobo, I know I say this every century, but I'll never leave you behind again. Wait for me, sir. I love I love Robo Dog Smithers. Yes, he's, he's very cute. Yeah. I love that. So obviously, like, the world that's kind of depicted there is inspired by Planet of the Apes. You have some apes driving a chariot being um, uh, pulled along by several homers. That's the the doe that you hear in the background. And then another sort of fun fact about this, too, is that you have Mr. Burns in a head jar, which is something that, of course, becomes a big thing in Futurama later. And the other thing that's really cool about it is I feel like it's really playing off of the Twilight Zone twist ending idea, right? Of totally. like, the story is completely resolved. You know, the climax has happened. The denouement basically happened. And then at the very end, they add this sort of stinger that turns the, the ending on its head and is like, you Absolutely. know, takes it in a different direction. So I thought that was, it's, it's a fun take on this. Well, we've referenced it multiple times. We've been building up to it. It's the moment we've all been waiting for. Let's get into it. Let's talk about Episode 19, Season 7's A Fish Called Selma, and the Planet of the Apes musical that Troy McClure is starring in, which is titled Stop the Planet of the Apes, I Want to Get Off. (laughs) And let's take a listen to what many, including myself, consider to be the greatest musical number in Simpsons history. Help, the human's about to escape. Get your paws off me, you dirty ape! (gasps) He can talk. He can talk, 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 he can talk! I can sing! Ooh, help me, Dr. Zayas! Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas! Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas! Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas! Oh, Dr. Zayas! Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. What's wrong with me? I think you're crazy. Want a second opinion? You're all so lazy. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Oh, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Can I play the piano anymore? Of course you can. Well, I couldn't before. This play has everything. I love legitimate theater. Don't we all, Homer? Don't we all? I mean, it's it's so good. So a couple things right off the top. There's a second layer here because literally for the better part of 15, 16, 17 years, had no idea that that song was a parody of an actual successful pop song called Rock Me Amadeus. I had no idea. Just thought thought it was a Simpsons song. And so it's like, so it's this multi-layered thing of it's a movie parody that's also a song parody that's also just sort of like a general parody of big budget musical theater of the 1980s and early 90s. And it's a Troy McClure episode. And I know Troy McClure is one of your favorite Simpsons characters, full stop. So, Oh, absolutely. Every, you know, you might remember me from line. And this episode, I mean, this parody is great, but this whole episode, just getting the opportunity to hang out with Troy McClure for that whole episode is such a treat. Yeah, I feel like I have a lot more 
love and reverence and things to say about this episode than I necessarily do about the movie. But um, seeing how long we've actually discussed the movie, maybe maybe that's not true. But I love this episode and how it's basically it's playing off this idea of sort of like the washed up celebrity, the sort of phoniness of Hollywood, the phoniness of Hollywood romances. And then also you get this wonderful musical number, which, you know, all these Simpson writers, they have this reverence and love for the film. But it turns out one of the showrunners, Josh Weinstein, had never seen Planet of the Apes. And yet he was familiar with it through Mad Magazine and through pop culture enough that he was like, yeah, I'm comfortable enough helping to write this giant parody that ends up being, you know, one of the crowning achievements of the show. So it's just it sort of speaks to our this premise that we've sort of been talking about of how, like, for us, we're introduced to these movies through The Simpsons. But for The Simpsons writers, they're introduced to some of these movies through things like Mad Magazine. And it's sort of like this full circle, the snakes eating its own tail. I just think that's so fascinating that someone who hasn't even seen the movie could somehow write a parody that is the perfect distillation of the movie or help write the parody. That's yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, apparently he was, he was running the room at the time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like, uh, and he was the one who came up with rock me doctors. He was like, well, what if we did a, like, let's do rock me Amadeus, but we'll do rock me Dr. Zayas. Like that was his idea. This guy who's never even seen the movie. Right. And yeah, there's a, there's a really great oral history of the writing of this scene in Vulture. Highly, highly recommend reading the whole thing. But they talk about all of this stuff. It's one of the few jokes, uh, I think, at all at, in The Simpsons that came really easily. Because <laughs> yeah. often they just, you know, they'll sit there ba- basically banging their heads against the wall, trying to come up with, you know, a name for a character, right? A sign in the background, a, a, a single line of dialogue, right? to get that funny thing and they'll go through lots and lots of different ideas to get there. But this one just kind of came really easily and then fast and furious once they got going and and they just kept building and building upon the initial idea. And you know, it's so funny because I remember as a kid, I remember listening to the episode where they do Oh Streetcar, I think it's called mm-hmm. the Streetcar Named Desire musical. And I remember asking my dad, I was like, because I was I was super into musical theater and, you know, I'm listening to all these cast albums. I'm like, can you get me the Streetcar Named Desire cast album? And he's like, what the hell are you talking about? That's not that's not a real <laughs> musical, Adam. And same with this. Like, I didn't know that it wasn't a real show and again, in the commentary, they were sort of saying like, oh, like this is a this is a good show. Like they should they should make this like this should be a real thing. And one of the last things I saw on Broadway before COVID, the last sort of trip we took to New York, one of the shows I saw was King Kong, which is legitimately a musical about King Kong. <laughs> it's happened to feature like this giant King Kong puppet. But it's like in many ways, like it kind of is reminiscent of this kind of show. Like they're saying the show that Troy is in is supposed to be a parody of like the the, the West End Broadway mega musical of the late 80s, early 90s. Your Phantom of the Opera, your Les Mis, your Lion King. Mm-hmm. But like, it, again, as is often the case, the Simpsons did it first. Then, you know, it's not Planet of the Apes, but it is King Kong. Like it actually sort of comes to fruition and ends up happening so it's only a matter of time before I'm sure we will see a Planet of the Apes totally. I mean, it reminds me of uh, in high school, we we had a friend who was <laughs> saying that there, there ought to be a musical for Queen, right? 
So all this awesome music, and and we gave him such shit. He's like, about I'm, gonna, that. I'm gonna write the Queen musical, and we're like, nobody is gonna go see a musical about Queen. And we said, if right. we were if we were making a movie of our lives, it would then cut to five years later, us standing in front of the We Will Rock You marquee because they, right. sure enough, they literally <laughs> made a musical about Queen with a character named Scaramouche Fandango. Which, if that's well, not a Simpson esque name, <laughs> what is? But exactly. So so yeah, I mean, it's like it's it's funny because it's just plausible enough that it could happen exactly exactly you know the flip side of it too though is that like having now watched the movie you know in recent memory and then come revisiting the the the, this musical version of it right the tone of it is completely different and that's part of what's so funny is that it's like troy is kind of delivering the lines in this kind of deadpan sort of way that's like he's reading a script right yeah yeah yeah. um and charlton heston is just chewing the scenery but is all you also really feel like he believes what he's saying and like totally there's there's a certain reality to his performance and so i think that and then also the lack of animosity in the musical we'll get to this more with the ending but you don't really get that the sense that he's really in much danger <laughs> no no though i do want to say and this is unrelated but i it bears mentioning phil hartman's voice is so good like when oh, he yeah. does that i can sing line like holy crap like that guy again in the commentary they basically are just showering praise on hartman and saying that he is basically the funniest human being who has ever lived and i mean it's such a tragic loss what happened with him but yeah. i mean because he's not he's not a cast member of the simpsons he's a guest star but there's a reason that he keeps coming back over and over again because he's just he imbues these characters with so much life and so much humor and it's such a joy to get to spend you know 23 minutes of television with essentially like a a throwaway character who this guy was able to like transform into one of the most iconic characters in the entire show so yeah who's surprisingly three-dimensional you know yeah exactly Um, he was mostly one-liners before this episode in a lot of ways Although he has a lot of great one-liners in this episode, including one of my favorite, which made me laugh so hard. (laughs) I'll see you in the morning and get ready for tennis. It comes on at 10. (laughs) That's a good one. Uh, Um, I'm going to see world. (laughs) (laughs) No, the other, one of the things that I've been really enjoying rewatching these episodes is like the line readings. There's these little throwaway lines. And my favorite in this episode is when it's like the sort of E.T. like Entertainment Tonight talking about Troy McClure and they're talking about his... Tonight, 70s leading man Troy McClure has finally met the woman of his dreams. We may remember... Woman? Huh. Okay. But it's just this brilliant... Like, it's it's perfectly timed, perfectly read, It and it made me genuinely laugh out loud. It's It's very good. There's actually an interesting Planet of the Apes connection, though, that we also discovered mm-hmm. in that... Simpsons composer Alf Clausen actually worked as a copyist on the original Planet of the Apes, which is, again, this lovely sort of full circle little moment. Yeah, totally. And, you know, two awesome songs that Clausen contributes to this, but also like the music in general in this show doesn't really get enough attention. And, you know, in the previous parody, one of the things that I, I neglected to mention is that awesome music that comes in at the end as Burns and Smithers mm. are running off into the distance, right? You have this kind of parody of this, the, you know, very famous score from Planet of the Apes, 
that is, I think, one of the first uh, atonal scores in, in a Hollywood movie. But The Simpsons has its own version of it that comes up every time the movie is parodied. So that's also a real treat. Yeah, I think Clausen is sort of one of the unsung heroes of the series and was when he was sort of acrimoniously let go recently in favor of basically using stock music there was a lot of uproar because a lot of these writers were saying like no you don't understand like he's very much a part of the dna of the show because you know yes we have writers on the show who are also composers and so like the songs tend to not always but like i know jeff martin for example he tends to write the lyrics and the music for the songs that he writes on the show and you know in this case like rock me amadeus is is a parody of a real song and i you know they're changing it just enough for it to be legally okay and not worrying right. but clausen does a lot of that of like he does these sort of sound alikes or when the end credits themes are changed to be a style parody you know maybe it's mm-hmm. the style of like dragnet Maybe it's the style of, you know, the big band or casino. That's all him. Music is such a huge part of The Simpsons, and he deserves to get as much credit as the writers do for his contribution to these incredibly iconic moments in the series. Yeah, it's just that attention to detail that really makes the series so memorable, whether it's a background gag or it's little things like the way the music changes at at the end of the episode. That's, That's what always kept me coming back. So let's talk, you know, we've been kind of circling around it this whole time, but let's talk about the ending. What, what, what did you think about that twist and how it kind of is unveiled? So again, you know, it's funny. I think the film suffers for knowing the ending. When yeah. I made the connection of when they're like, let's go to the Forbidden Zone. Like, I, I literally said out loud, I was like, oh, they're at the Forbidden Zone. It's forbidden because that's where the Statue of Liberty is. Like, when you know it, it's kind of telegraphing. The reveal is beautiful. They do a really nice job with it of like the tracking and like not revealing it right away. I can only imagine the impact it would have been if you didn't know that. But yeah, knowing it, it was just like, well, this is the big twist and this is what I've been waiting two hours to get to. So, (laughs) Yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, I... I just love the artistry with with how it's done. You know, you were as you were alluding to, the cinematography is great. You have the, the sort of pan over the the crown, and and he's framed by the crown on the beach. Mm-hmm. There's the waves crashing. It all kind of comes together. You have the cinematography. You also have the music and the sound design that's coming together in that moment, and the performance. Yeah. Right. So it's like. The music is playing as they're on the beach, and it's kind of eerie, right? The, and again, it's a lot like that ending of the, the Citizen Kane episode of The Simpsons, right? The whole story is basically done at this point, right? Yeah. They beat Dr. Zaius, they get their freedom, they're riding along the beach into the Forbidden Zone, but the music kind of continues and is has this eerie sort of quality. So you kind of feel like, all right, it's not over, why isn't yeah, it something, over? Something's coming. Right. And then so they they kind of come up upon this like mysterious structure at first and you don't know exactly what it is. But then in the next shot, you start to see the crown and and then it zooms in on him and he has this breakdown. You maniacs! You blew it up! Oh, damn you! God damn you all to hell! And the performance is great. I think it is outstanding, and there's a reason why it's iconic. You know, and, but the other thing that's amazing about this moment, too, is that at this point, the music completely disappears. And the only thing that, that you can really hear is him talking, 
but then the the waves crashing against the beach start start kind of coming up and at the end of the movie you know we actually pulled this trick in <laughs> one of the films we made in high school um, yes. where uh, instead of getting music with the end credits all you hear is the continued crashing of the waves and when we we had the amazing opportunity to actually like show this to an audience in in a theater you know it was in the context of a film festival and you know usually everyone sort of claps at the end of of the of the films and we got no applause <laughs> and i take that as as a good sign that people yeah, are so like, into it that, that, yeah, that like, you know uh, is this is this is the lack of applause because it worked or because they hated right. it Right. And we got the applause eventually. Yeah, but, exactly. But, the, so but, like, but, you know, it was like that moment of yeah, you were totally. still, you, the director was not giving you permission to leave the movie yet. Yes. Right. It's like you're still in that moment with him on the beach hearing the waves crashing. Um, yeah, because again, if you think about it in terms of movie making, there's two types of music. There's diegetic and non-diegetic. And so usually over the credits, you know, if if credits are rolling and there's music playing, it's like, well, the movie's done now. But by not having that traditional approach, and like you said, just having the waves crashing, it, it sort of keeps the audience a little bit more captive in that moment and doesn't give them the release of, okay, everything's okay now. And it's, I would disagree about the performance. I don't know if it's, again, just because it's Heston or if it's because of the parodies or what. It, it, it feels a little scenery-chewy for me, but... By that point, too, I was also just sort of like over it. So you were ready I, you for know, it to I, be done. Yeah, exactly. So maybe I'm yeah. not giving it, it a fair shake. I mean, the thing that I like about it and the thing that I like about his performance in general in this is that at various points, he really gets at the horror of this situation. And you really feel like this guy's losing his mind, you know, like yeah. like at the, at the point where, where he gets captured and the, and the, the like the madhouse line. Like, you really feel like this guy is like, what is going on? I am trapped in this reality that I don't understand, and it's terrifying. And in this moment, you get a bit of that, too, of just this sort of extreme tragedy of this literally earth-shattering moment where you realize that everything you thought is a lie and that everything you hold dear is gone and that really, like, the worst in humanity prevailed, you know? And, like, just the, the horror of that... I feel like comes through in that moment, but you know, it's, it's so funny because the more we talk about this, the more I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, Oh man, I wonder what it would be like if this movie were like remade with like a different actor. And like, <laughs> and then I'm like, Oh, well it was, but then the different actor that they chose was Marky Mark. Like, <laughs> but it's true. Like yeah. I do, there's something about this and the ideas and the themes here that they're compelling. And it's like, you know, what if it was Philip Seymour Hoffman in that role? Like someone who can sort of mm -hmm. play both a troubled individual, but one that you're like the sort of anti-hero. Like he was sort of the first actor that just jumped to mind who's because he's such a talented actor, but he plays mm -hmm. these kind of characters. And I'm like, you know, like would that scene have resonated more if it was someone who is a little less scenery chewy, a little less leathery, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah. There's no way to know, but to that point, that scene makes an appearance in a different episode of The Simpsons with a different character in place of Charlton Heston. So let's just, let's take a listen to that. Question for the barbecue chef. Don't you think there is an inherent danger in sending underqualified civilians into space? I'll field this one. 
The only danger is if they send us to that terrible planet of the apes. Wait a minute. Statue of Liberty. That was our planet! You maniacs! You blew it up! Damn you! Damn you all to hell! (laughs) And see, that's an over-the-top Homer performance, and I feel like Heston's is not that different from that. Yeah! No, I mean, the thing that's so funny about that scene is that it is such a, a, a perfect imitation of Heston, both in the delivery of the line, but also in the animation of like mm-hmm. how he collapses, the movement of his arm, everything is exactly the same as that scene. And one of the things I love about that moment too is that not only does Homer seem to think that the Planet of the Apes is a real place, but he also just like didn't get the ending of the movie nope. at all. <laughs> You know, until that moment, until that moment. And then his reaction, of course, is the same kind of cosmic horror that that Charlton Heston's character has. Yeah. So that's pretty good one. Now let's jump back to Stop the Planet of the Apes. I want to get off and see how they handle the ending of Planet of the Apes. I hate every ape I see from chimpanzee to chimpanzee. No, you'll never make a monkey out of me. Oh my God, I was wrong. It was Earth all along. You finally made a monkey. Yes, we finally made a monkey. Yes, you finally made a monkey out of me. I love you, Dr. Zayas. That's so good. It's so best. One of the things that jumped out at me, which I've never noticed before, and maybe it's just because we're doing this in an audio format, but the moment where he notices the <laughs> the Statue of Liberty behind him, there's a very subtle sort of like squeaking as yeah. it comes up onto the stage. And I just love that moment because it really highlights the sort of the stagey quality of everything, totally. right? Like the things have to move on and it's all practical and all that. Anyway. What a scene. And I feel like the interesting thing about this too is that it actually totally changes the ending of Planet of the Apes. And maybe speaks to the fact also that Josh Weinstein had not necessarily seen the movie. And also probably, you know, they they care more about like it being funny and it feeling like Planet of the Apes than it being accurate or anything. So it's like the twist is there, but, but the whole context is different. Like the idea that like, he's going to kind of become one of the apes almost, or like, I love you, Dr. Zayas. Like, you know. Yeah, and and the apes doing a kick line because right, it's a right. musical. Yeah, no, it's, it lacks the existential horror that the <laughs> ending of the, the film sort of strives for and turns it into just this like crass commercial musical theater moment that, you know, yeah, it totally, it's of course, of course that's what you would do, you know. No, it's easily top five musical moments in the Simpsons. It is some of the best writing. It is, I mean, chimpan A to chimpanzee. That, I mean, that is gold. That is that, that, gold. That line is perfect. 
And also, I think that you finally made a monkey out of me <laughs> doesn't get enough credit for how good of a line that is, too. Because yeah. pairing that with the realization <laughs> that it was Earth all along, yeah. is, when you've seen the movie, is hilarious. The idea that, oh, well, they really made a monkey out of him. Yeah, totally. Well, so, Adam, <laughs> all things told. Okay. And with all of this, all of these awesome parodies in mind, what is your final verdict on this movie? Have I persuaded you, or do you still feel like this is a no for you? Look, um, I have referenced before, and I think even it was in our last episode, like, there are movies that I respect but don't enjoy. Mm-hmm. And while this film, you know, I might not hold it in as high regard as, say, like an Apocalypse Now or even a Doctor Strange Love, I recognize its importance. And clearly, it had a huge impact on science fiction entertainment and on these writers and all this stuff. It did nothing for me. I do not imagine I will ever revisit it unless, again, you know, my son wants to sit down and watch it for some reason. But hey, that's part of the fun of doing this. That's the point of the show is to explore stuff that we haven't necessarily seen before. So talking it through with you, like I I definitely think that there's more to the film than maybe I was giving it credit for. But I still maintain that I did not enjoy it was bored for, you know, the entire third act, more or less, and ultimately think that the Simpsons musical version is the best (laughs) version of Planet of the Apes out there. Yeah, okay. But how about you? Like, upon upon your, like, revisit, like, did did it live up to your memories, your expectations? Yeah, I mean, I... I still super enjoy this movie. I am a huge sci-fi fan. I love returning to the kind of the world of it i love the i love the sort of uh the artifice of it i also love the the kind of ideas that it grapples with and so for me i i think it does still hold up and i would i would recommend it if you're someone who likes that kind of stuff if you like the kind of sci-fi that really does dig into politics human nature philosophy all that kind of stuff this is definitely that kind of movie and, and also, like, if you do like stuff of this era, I really do think that's important. The pacing is definitely 60s pacing. It's pre, pre-Star Wars pacing. So, so that's an important thing. Well, it's, it's interesting because we didn't really, we didn't talk about this at all, but, like, this movie came out a few months before arguably the most important science fiction movie ever made, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Like, same year. True. This came out in February. 2001 came out in April. And there are some similarities and stuff. Um, better apes in this one. Be- much better apes in this one. Definitely. Actually, that's that's a very good point. The ape makeup in that movie is terrible. The special effects are a lot better, though. But yeah, like part of the joy of doing this show with you is that while we have very similar tastes and very similar senses of humor, there are also areas where we very much differ. And I think those perspectives play off of each other really well so so i i am not surprised that this is a movie that sort of ticks your boxes and doesn't (laughs) tick mine um but i'm i will say even if i didn't enjoy it i'm glad that it's something that i have now finally seen that i will know more where these references come from 
And, you know, on if I ever get one of those like dumb scratch off movie posters where it's like scratch off the hundred, you know, most famous movies of all time, like I get to this is one of those ones that I get to now tick off that otherwise I, I wouldn't have. So I'm glad I finally saw it, even if it wasn't really my my cup of tea. Yeah, that makes sense. And so, what you know, as someone who was not so hot on this, <laughs> what what kind of extra credit, what kind of other movies in this vein would you recommend that people might enjoy more if they didn't love this one? I mean, I do think it's worth checking out the 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 reboot slash prequel series. It's tonally different because it mm-hmm. is modern. If memory serves, the first film is a little more like science fiction-y and then the second film was a little more like action movie although again i've only seen them once and it's it was a while ago but they run with these sort of themes and ideas that are laid out here but with a much more like modern context and then modern visuals so if you're someone who just can't get into this because it looks like a movie from the 60s you can get some of that flavor from that reboot series i guess you sort of alluded to it black mirror like because there's Mm -hmm. a sort of twilight zone vibe like black mirror has that same sort of science fiction dystopia kind of stuff yeah i think i think for me like definitely i I have not watched that much of the twilight zone um and i also haven't seen soylent green Mm. so i i'm kind of feeling like now because i i was reminded how much i enjoyed this i feel like i'm gonna have to go check that stuff out to kind of get more of a fix of that kind of sci-fi content so that's that's next up on my list that distinctly 60s era pre-moon landing science fiction. So that brings us to the part of the episode where we get to pick the next film that we'll be viewing, and it's my turn, and we're going to be taking a bit of a departure from what we've sort of been watching the last couple weeks. We're, we're leaving the 60s behind. We're jumping to the 1980s. No more sci-fi, no more satire. Well, I guess this is still actually kind of satirical, but we're going to be watching Wes Craven's Masterpiece. A Nightmare on Elm Street. Nate, I am so excited for you to watch this. We both have an affinity for the Scream franchise, which is probably Wes Craven's other most famous mm-hmm. franchise. We saw the fourth Scream movie together in theaters on opening night. It is, to this day, still my favorite screening experience <laughs> I've ever had. And yeah, I think Wes Craven does not get enough credit for being as good of a director than he is. Like, I think he's a genius. I think he has mastered the art of horror, comedy, thriller, filmmaking. Nobody does it better. And despite the fact that the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise goes completely off the rails, the first one is really, really fun. And I'm really, really interested to hear what you think of it because I love it. This is not one of those situations where like I grew up watching these movies so I have this nostalgia. I came to it very late but it ticks so many boxes for me and I can't wait to hear what you think of it. Yeah, that's very high praise and this is like exactly a good example of what you were saying before which is that you know we have this overlapping taste but we also have some areas where we're a little bit different and I tend to be more sci-fi oriented and you tend to like more horror movies. And so this is a good, a good example where you're going to be kind of taking me into your taste. And I'm, I'm excited for uh, that experience. Well, on that note, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the Springfield Googleplex, the movie podcast for Simpson fans. If you enjoyed what you heard, as always, please leave us a review or share this episode with your fellow Simpson fans or, or film buffs in your life. 
you know, post about it on social media. We, we, we love getting feedback. We'd love to hear what you think. And we do it for you guys and Nate's mom. Again, thank you so much for listening and tune in next time for another episode of the Springfield Googleplex. You're on the plex. Oh, damn it. You beat me to it. Schaffner, Schaefer. Schaffner, Schaefer. Schaffner. Schaffner. Schaffner? 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 Who knows? I can see.